Hi everyone, my name is Ben Shields and welcome to Make Good, a monthly conversation with Australian artists, designers and entrepreneurs that examines how they use design to shift behaviour and thinking for the better. Julia and Geordie Kay. Julia and Geordie Kay are the entrepreneurs behind the incredible success of Great Wrap, a company that produces compostable cling and pallet wrap originating in Melbourne. During our conversation, Geordie and Julia stepped us through from the company's inception four years ago to its current state of operation, a 10,000 square metre factory in Tullamarine. They also shared insights into their valued university R&D partners and the process of turning potatoes into plastic. I hope you enjoy our chat. Could you please both introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about um, what you do? Okay, I'm I'm Julia, I'm co-founder of Great Rap. Um, my previous career was in architecture. My name's Geordie. Uh, I am Julia's personal assistant, husband, <laughs> and uh, also co-founder of Great Rap, um, which we convert uh, potato waste uh, upcycled from things like French fries into a compostable stretch film. And before that, I made natural wine. Could you give us a brief history of Great Rap? Uh, I mean, like all good ideas, it was definitely started on a beach, long walk, and it was, um, I think like a lot of people, maybe in our generation, kind of going, world's burning, uh, feels like nothing's being done, you know, what can I do um, that would help? And, you know, I think for us, um, didn't really feel like we had the uh, expertise um, to maybe roll out electric vehicles or tackle um, the energy crisis, um, but you know, I think in our backgrounds, um, did feel like we had a strong connection to materials, and uh, I loved chemistry and biology when I studied agriculture, and I, I loved um, that, you know, I guess aspect to making wine as well, and um, knew that people were using plants to create kind of biomaterials to mimic plastic, and thought that was fascinating, and um, yeah, I think that was kind of. A, Thing that we, you know, thought, well, maybe if we could tackle the plastic waste problem, there's, you know, hundreds of millions of, um, of gallons uh, of petroleum mined from the soil every year to make plastic. So maybe if we could just replace that with a more sustainable material, then hopefully that's a good business idea. I don't know. How, how do we land on pallet wrap? Well, I think we landed on pallet wrap because essentially both of us had a touch point with the product. Um, obviously wine, shipping that around the world, you're wrapping pallets all of the time. I mean, you know, you go out onto a construction site and see just, you know, kilometres of the stuff sort of flapping around in the wind. Um, And I think having that really sort of like close connection point with it and, you know, chatting to some suppliers and seeing it in warehouses and just, you know, asking where it was going and, you know, realising that it couldn't be recycled. um, I think we got a really unique well, semi-unique perspective on just how much this is really like the connector of every business, every every business is using it. And so I think, you know, to tackle any problem, right, you've got to start with one one product and we knew Pallet Wrap well, so that's how we started. I think since we decided Pallet Wrap, though, we went on a bit of a journey. Um, obviously, we've got like the product for home. Um, Pallet Wrap, so it's, we find it really exciting. But, you know, it's, it's like hard to get people excited about or tell a narrative about a, a, you know, B2B product that not a lot of people see in their everyday. So um, 
we thought, you know, every house has a kitchen. Let's make a product where people can touch and feel what we're doing. And that's kind of what we've been doing today. And how long ago was this first idea to start the business? Uh, like three months after we met. So <laughs> 2019. Wild. What a journey. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, it's been big. It's been interesting. Uh, I think like, I mean, in wine and architecture, it's all about like, building things slow and taking time and using lots of people and, and like running craft. and craft and, you know, <laughs> like, um, and then like a startup, it's all like fail fast and, you know, learn quick and iterate and, and make lots of really bad products before it actually works. And, um, and so, so you like, you just move so, so much faster. Like in wine, I started off farming five acres and then the next year, maybe six acres and just slowly sort of growing. And, and by the end I was farming 10 acres, which is nothing. Uh, and now, you know, like, I don't know, our factory feels like it's almost 10 acres inside. You could have a small like city yeah. <laughs> functioning quite well in the space. So yeah. it's been crazy. How big is the business now? Uh, in terms of like team, uh, I think we've got about 25 people on the team at the moment. Um, yeah, we're, we're pretty much, you know, a week away from launching pallet wraps. So expecting to grow, um, fairly rapidly in our manufacturing and sort of business development teams. Um, yeah. Yeah. We sort of, I think, yeah, like went from 400 square meters to 11,000 square meters. Um, we've had, uh, about 5,000 customers for pallet wrap reach out to us, um, which we're about to sort of launch with and, um, a lot of very, very large household names around the world um, wanting to use our product. And, um, yeah, I, I guess there's, like, so many funny, like, metrics for measuring growth. I think a lot of, like, again, like, sort of startups they measure, like, by how much capital you've raised and how many yeah. VCs. <laughs> but I think, yeah, we're definitely, like, how big is our space, how big is our team and how many customers we've got. And I also like the – so, like, in terms of, like, the home product we've sold – well, we've had 50,000 orders. So I'm like, that's 50,000 people or 50,000 people in a kitchen. There's a lot, it's a lot of people. It's a lot of kitchens. <laughs> it's a lot of kitchens, <laughs> which is cool. <laughs> did, did you go the traditional route with, um, with the company in terms of startup, like going through an incubator or doing any of those things? Yeah, I think we were like probably like run of the mill. Yeah, very much so. I think also because coming from a background where this is completely new, um, I think it was really important to, to kind of go through, we went through the Startmate Accelerator program probably 12 months into the journey and that was really amazing for us because we were able to kind of meet other founders and mentors and investors and all of those things that you don't naturally have if, if it's not the business you've kind of grown up in essentially. So it was really cool. Yeah, and I think like... Um you know, we've done like the investor route and I think like really early on brought on kind of strategic investors like Simon Griffiths who started Who Gives a Crap and um, people that can like add a lot of value and kind of mentor us and then um, we have brought on bigger investors to kind of help that growth, which is funny because I'm looking at one of their logos. We're sitting opposite a Woolworth sign who's <laughs> one of our investors, um, obviously because, you know, they want to integrate what we're doing into their business and be more sustainable. So it's sort of... You know, we've there's a very wide spectrum of the type of people that we've brought into the business, but um, yeah. 
One of the things I love about great rap is the clarity with which you can express the problem that you wanted to solve. Do you think it's really critical for, for success in business to be able to express a problem clearly? I think it's critical in anything, right? Like, I mean, a design brief, uh, a business, if you if you can't express what you're trying to do, how can you um, go about solving that problem? And if you can't also just like talk to the people around you with clarity, um, it's really hard to get people to kind of buy into the journey that you're on and sort of support what you're trying to do. What do you think? Yeah, I, th- I feel like <laughs> if, you know, it's got to pass like, like the uncle auntie test. Yeah, like, totally. Can you, know, can you like be at a Christmas barbecue and... Um, and sort of talk about, I don't know, some digital transformation, innovation, and they does it go over their head or do they get it? And, um, you know, I feel like that's a good starting point because if you can get, you know, anyone on board, then obviously a lot more people are going to really get into what you're doing and support your business. Although do some, it's like we do sometimes say with family members or like new people like, oh, yeah, you know, just, work at a packaging company, which is... <laughs> that, that's our way to get out of conversation. <laughs> yeah. Conversation avoider. Yeah. yeah. Don't get many questions so on good. that. Yeah. <laughs> have you both always been entrepreneurial? I have. I've, um, I've been self-employed since I was 20, worked on and off with a few, few people over the years. Um, but, yeah, definitely I think... Um, I mean, I never, I never finished high school, um, never finished my degree, um, which I later got into. And then, um, yeah, just kind of always loved working for myself and kind of going my own sort of journey a bit. And, um, and it has worked out in many ways and in a lot of ways it's been a lot of struggles. So, yeah, um, I guess I have. Um, I always kind of wanted, I wanted to have my own design studio um, and I always knew that. So, um, I, but in, in saying that my, I guess, career path was fairly traditional. Like I got a, you know, great job and just wanted exposure to projects and so that I could in theory take that away onto my studio. Um, so it's always been what I wanted, but I think my pathway was a little bit more traditional than Geordie's. I didn't have the, <laughs> my own boss for 10 years thing going on. <laughs> 12 years. 12 years, sorry. <laughs> Why did you choose to come up with a sustainable alternative to cling wrap as opposed to trying to design it out of the, out of the supply chain altogether? Yeah. <laughs> definitely thought about it. <laughs> we definitely thought about it. So it was um, for, like for pallet wrap there was um, reusable alternatives that had been used before uh, and are still in use now and um, we spoke to customers. I mean, this is the best advice I've always been given is go and speak to your customers and see if they actually want what you're making. And we'd spoken to big customers that had trialled those solutions and found them difficult, the returns. Were, it was always a lot uh, of issues with that. Millions of pallets are freighted around the world every day um, and to create a, a whole new global network where there could be a reusable solution was going to be too challenging. Um, and then that reusable solution may inevitably end up in landfill and sit there for yeah. a lot longer. Yeah. So we kind of um, knew that it would um, our product had to exist um, uh, unless we went to you know kind of back in time. But sadly, you know, we can't. And so yeah, that was sort of really kind of the genesis for I guess changing the materials rather than changing the process or behaviour. Are there other products that are? deeply ingrained in the supply chain that you think should be 
designed out as opposed to coming up with a with a um, some sort of sustainable alternative? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, like the other sort of big one, but I can't think of a solution. Maybe is like the pallets that you use, like yeah. directly connected to supply chain. Um, how you would design that out? I don't. I don't know if you can. I mean, it needs a base essentially. Um, yeah, there's definitely like there's a company doing um, pallets from recycled plastic. Doesn't sound that you know exciting to a lot of people, but uh, again, there's. Um, sort of huge issues with deforestation to, to produce wooden pallets. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's a massive, massive problem. Um, but, uh, yeah, like really granular type stuff is like freight labels, sticky tape. There's all these kind of peripheral things sure. that are just yeah. like involved in like packaging and transportation that aren't sexy items. Like I think people look at a coffee cup um, and it obviously mm-hmm. makes a, a you know, big impact because you throw it in the bin so everyone switched their behaviour to reusable alternatives, which is incredible because it proved out a concept which you can change consumer behaviour and usually is very, very challenging. Um, But, um, yeah, I think there's a lot of these funny little things like pallet wrap that exist that need to be changed and um, are often overlooked. Can you just expand a little bit more about why it was important to introduce a home product before the pallet wrap? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so I think basically um, the home product was really important for us because um, we're essentially like reinventing um, a material and we need to change people's perceptions of what that material is made of, where it comes from, um, how it operates. So to do that you need to build trust and you need to have a connection and you need to be able to talk directly with, with those customers. I mean... Um, Without that, it would be really hard. Like all of these businesses that we're talking to about pallet wrap, if they hadn't sort of seen, um, touched and felt the product for home, it would be a really hard story to tell. I think like, you know, at the end of the day, humans are really quite simple. We like to, we're tactile, like you need to see something to believe it. And when you tell someone that you can make plastic from, um, you know, food waste, that's that's a hard concept to grasp unless you've, built that trust and that's what the for home product was about for us I think. Seems like a real masterstroke just doing that getting the visibility and then sort of um, you've got that that link to your kind of main main idea. Yeah I think we're making it sound more intentional than than what it was I feel like there was because <laughs> originally we were like yeah let's do pallet wrap and then it also was like we had all these people reach out saying like I want it can I do you guys do cling wrap for home and sure. we were like Oh my god! And then it was just like we're like this is great because of everything Julia just said, and uh, and then it really just um, it went crazy good. It was insane. And we're able to learn a lot from it. And I think like because of listening to the customers and having that direct voice, like there's a lot of people that you talk to in business who are like you're either a consumer product or you're a B two B product, mm. and you mm. can't be both. Um, but I think yeah, the learnings that we are, you know, mm. <laughs> creating intention around, I think that will always be a really core part of what we do just because it's just so powerful. And, yeah, I mean, I can't imagine doing it another way. It would be really hard to talk about pallet wrap without having anyone to talk to about it with. <laughs> Lots of people are making plastic alternatives. Like it's it's a big thing at the moment. 
Why were you guys able to, to turn your idea into reality so quickly, um, you know, and, and, and mm. seek investment, whereas other people are still kind of developing products or, you know, just in the idea phase? I think we, well, there's a lot of amazing research going on, right, and that's really powerful and really important. I think we got lucky in the sense that we weren't um, highly technical um, in relation to what we were doing. So the approach that we took was essentially like getting all of the most intelligent people in the room to solve a problem and that meant that we could sort of fast track a lot of a lot of those problems. Would you agree? Like I think we've been able to really work with some amazing people to kind of allow things to happen faster rather than trying to build things in silos ourselves. Yeah, we, we lie heavily, um, like we have an R&D partner um, to scale our system into pilot scale in Belgium. We work with another university in Europe. We work with Monash University very closely, um, a couple other biotech contractors and engineering contractors. So it was sort of like, how do you bring all these great people, as Julie said, to the room and have a conversation and solve a problem? I think that was sort of one thing. I think we just like, it, pallet wrap was just this thing that we were using and we were like, oh, this we use so much and there's not a solution out there and then just turns out like any other person in the world that was using pallet wrap happened to actually think the same thing and no one had really tried to innovate so we I think we just got lucky it was just like I don't know it's like coming up with an alternative to plastic bags Mm. 15 years ago Mm. and no one had ever thought about like a reusable bag yeah you know like we just I think we were incredibly fortunate with the timing um and, you know, we, we listened to our sort of gut instinct and then um, I think, like, the investor piece is, like, in, I guess investors, I'm, I'm not an investor, so I don't know, but I think investors do invest in companies where they see, you know, huge, huge sort of potential and, and they know that, yeah, lots of people use our product and um, and we've managed to figure out a way to connect with those people and, um, and so, yeah, again, like, we were sort of super fortunate and... Right now, it's really, really tough time to sort of raise capital, um, like incredibly challenging. Um, so we were also Rice. really fortunate that we raised um, 12 months ago when the markets were it was like free money and low interest and no inflation. <laughs> <laughs> Very lucky. Um, so, yeah. How do you start these conversations with, with people? Is there are you, are you reaching out to different to different research groups within universities or are people hearing about you through their sort of networks? How does it all, how does it all start? I think the, f- the first one came about because of just uh, someone I'd, I'd known for 10 years who, um, who happened to be really interested in this space and was working with Monash um, and was just sort of finishing up their masters. Um, we're now um, sponsoring his PhD. Um, and we worked really closely with him, um, Edward Attenborough. Um, and then that's a, that's a very strong name. It is. So he strong. actually is so related strong. to um, David oh, right. Attenborough, but very loosely. <laughs> <laughs> Does he milk that? Yeah, <laughs> definitely. I mean, we, we tell everyone that. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but yeah, we met, met Eddie. Um, like I met him years and years ago. Just really fortunate. And then uh, over the, the years, we sort of keep tabs on who's doing what in the space. Um, I love to read science publications and journals and so reaching out to different folks, um, whether it's an individual or an R&D company and um, 
we're so sort of persistent on reaching out to folks to see what they're doing and maybe there's an area we can cross over or work together on and, and collaborate on. So, yeah, we're really, really active and I think that's probably like a big downfall for a lot of kind of early venture type companies is, is they want to kind of hold all their cards close to their chest and they think oh, they're the only ones working on something and they've got this secret source and the reality is like there's a lot of people out there doing what you're doing um, and maybe you can work together and, and sort of solve a problem and it's not going to hinder but only help, um, yeah, both of your sort of growth. Could you describe the experience of, of, of entering and walking through your factory in Telemarine and what we are likely to see and hear and smell? Ooh, this is fun. Because <laughs> <laughs> when you start and when you heat it up, it, it smells like um, like toffee and... Butterscotch. But yeah, and then um, but I also worked at McDonald's for three months when I was 14 years old. 14 and nine months, I was the legal age. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was... You I was they're going to come and get yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was on the fryer and flipping burgers and it, it definitely um, also has this funny um, deep fryer smell. Okay. Um, but, I mean, you're probably best equipped to explain visually what it looked like. Oh, okay. Um, so essentially our, our facility at Telemarine is actually the old um, Willow, I don't know if you remember Willow Eskies. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's, a, it's an injection moulding factory that was wow. sort of custom built wow. to spec. So... Um, I think it's really, it's quite cool because, you know, eventually this will become kind of the home of, of biopolymers in, you know, Melbourne, we'd like to think. And it's come from this like conventional uh, plastic plastic background. So essentially, you know, you walk in and it's a, a huge manufacturing facility. Um, you walk in through like, it's kind of like a glass atrium. Um, and what used to be the Willow cafeteria has now sort of become our team's office. Um, so we have obviously got the manufacturing team and then kind of our HQ team. So there's always sort of like a bit of action going on in there. Um, and then if you walk through, you'll end up in the, I guess, the manufacturing space, which is just like this huge, vast volume um, of space. Currently we're subleasing a portion of it out to a business that actually is storing egg cartons. So we've got 50 million stacked egg cartons. You'll see those as wow. you smell the toffee. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. And then I think usually you're best to describe the machine. It's your... Yeah, and then I guess you kind of walk, walk through um, a very big, um, very high ceiling, sort of 11 metre high ceiling warehouse um, that's, yeah, a few football pitches kind of wide and long and, um, and you see all of our equipment, which um, is uh, all imported. Um, from Austria, Denmark and uh, Italy and comes in containers in 100,000 different pieces and we sort of assemble everything. Was it, were they wrapped in anything? No, actually not. No, no, but, um, <laughs> but you know, like everything, they're incredi incredibly organised and it was like everything, it was 100,000 pieces with a catalogue and so like everything had a barcode so you could figure out where it was in the catalogue and kind of like a giant Ikea set, but we okay. got them to come over to help out, but it was like even the pens had a barcode. Um, yeah, right, so right. it was a lot of detail and, and that sort of equipment, um, yeah, I mean, it, for me, it looks kind of futuristic and fascinating. I love it. Um, but, you know, it's, um, I guess the sounds that it gives off as well is, is um, you know, I think quite a unique um, sort of factory experience because there's fans and there's 
you know, equipment rolling at 400 metres a minute and there's heat coming off um, uh, extruders that are melting biopolymers down to or up to 200 degrees and then coming out as a molten liquid. So it's kind of like in any direction there's sort of sensory overload and as a lot of people walk into the site, they're kind of like, wow, how are you guys doing this? Yeah. <laughs> One thing I think is particularly cool in the sense of sound is that we do have this crazy system and you're, I'm probably going to explain this terribly, but essentially we've got all of these um, pieces of machinery across the factory floor that we have to um, kind of, I guess, transport the polymers um, across in. And so they're like essentially tiny little beads. Um, but it's almost like we've built this like tube system that they can be sucked through and across the machinery so you'll get like the little rattling it's like it's cool I love that part yeah yes yeah hundreds of thousands of little beads sort of like flowing sucking. through a steel tube wow. yeah. with a vacuum feeder yeah <laughs> it's cool <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. exactly why potato um yeah so potato is one of the most um available um high starch content forms of food waste. Um, it's also in uh, centralised locations. So there's a lot of food waste out there, which is really troublesome, but um, it's spread out across councils or households or different farms and really difficult to set up a system that could collect that. Um, we use like waste from making French fries. Um, so all of the potato farmers send all of the potatoes to one facility. Um, there's a lot of waste created in that process, somewhere between 10 and 30%. Um, and so we can have a plant that can, you know, um, tap into that waste, um, which is, is much easier. Um, also, yeah, so we're looking for the starch. Um, our sort of current system extracts the starch um, and we uh, compound that with a bioplasticizer to change the molecular structure um, and that gives us our film uh, in the future. Um, and what we've been working on with that company in Belgium um, is actually using bacteria to ferment that starch um, into a natural occurring biopolymer called PHA. Um, so currently our material is home compostable. Um, it'll break down in landfill, break down in compost at home, but PHA, because it's um, made from a bacterial fermentation process, um, much like fermenting wine, uh, it will also break down in marine environments. Sure. Um, so, you know, marine degradable obviously is sort of the next big step for us and um, we're planning to build that plant next year and, and very, very sort of excited. And, you know, I, there's a number of other businesses in Australia um, using other sort of waste um, sort of processes to create PHA. No one's at commercial scale, everyone's at lab scale. Um, Ulu in Western Australia are using seaweed um, as a feedstock. So it, PHA is kind of definitely the future and we're very big advocates for it. What is a biorefinery? Um, it's essentially a place to wash, process and ferment uh, material. I mean, uh, I guess you have a refinery, like an oil refinery um, to produce um, traditional polymers. Um, ours, we just put bio in the front because it is all bio-based. But can we go back a step? When you said you extract the starch, mm. what happens then with what's left? Yeah, the yeah. Um, so once we extract the starch, I guess we have a process to extract the rest of that in, into glucose as well. It's um, currently in draft patent form, so we can't go into too much detail, but we've, we've developed a system to not only recover the starch, but also recover the rest of the waste um, and convert that into glucose and feed it to the bacteria. Yeah, great. Yeah. Um, how much energy is used when making great wrap? 
Uh, a lot less than traditional plastic, being that um, we use lower temperatures. Um, currently, we're about to put in 1.4 megawatts of solar on our on our roofs. So um, during summer, that will um, give us about 90% of our electricity. Um, the rest of our electricity we purchase through certified green energy, currently through Shell. Um, yeah, you know, hopefully in the future, there'll be better options. I think what is it, 86% of Victoria's energy we um made from renewables by 2030. So I think that's what we, we can do what's in our power, um, which is put solar on the roof. That uh, was a terrible pun and unintended, <laughs> but yeah. Why doesn't the factory already have solar? Yeah, definitely. I guess the um, previous design, tenants- probably. Yeah, <laughs> the previous tenants went out of business. Um, so Willow, um, I think went into administration and was bought out by um, another company and it was really used essentially for a storage facility. Um, I think it was purpose built in the 80s, so yeah, pre. How much water is used when making great rub? So yeah, current system, um, we work in another company that does the processing for us of the potato waste. And then once we um, go into um, using uh, our own PHA facility, um, we won't use that much water. So potato waste is uh, 80% water and we can extract that and reverse osmosis and then use that in the system. So we have a really low water consumption uh, and then throughout the process, um, we're building a lot of filtration systems to constantly recycle. Um, so yeah, thankfully it has a very low environmental footprint. Yeah, let you go. Like from from building, like fruition to, um, sure. Okay, step one um, idea. <laughs> so yeah, you know, based off a few conversations, we decided that this was what we wanted to do. Um, and first thing first was, I guess, to, you know, sort of test that product on the market and find something that was close uh, to what we eventually wanted to make. Um, and then essentially we had to, I guess, do all the fun things like try and build a brand around that and a platform to sell. So I think I was still working full time at the time and I whipped <laughs> up a horrible website in a few nights after work. It's good, it's good. <laughs> um, <laughs> Have you still got that? <laughs> or I think I had to get rid of it just for my own. Uh, I could find it. It would actually be in Squarespace somewhere. Yeah. But, yeah, I haven't I haven't looked at it. I looked at it about two years ago and I got really stressed out by it. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, once we had that going, we did what we thought was, I guess, like a launch at the time, um, which essentially involved us posting on our Instagrams and LinkedIn, um, which off the back of that we had, you know, international airports reaching out within 24 hours and um, I think that was the moment that probably we were like, okay, I think it's feasible to think about this becoming more than maybe just a side business or, you know, what we'd kind of conceived at the start. What happened after that? Yeah, I think, um, I guess uh, once we sort of did that, we knew we needed some money to set up <laughs> a factory and uh, we were already working with Monash at this point. So um, we were able to get some um, R&D funding, which would get us our first sort of pilot line. Um, so I think we received 250 grand from the federal government, which was enough to kind of get up and running. And, and then um, we knew we needed to start making some money because at this point we needed a couple of people to run the line with us. And then <laughs> there was five of us and really had to sell some, and it got pretty down to the wire on 
a lot of times uh, on running out of money. And um, so we sort of started making a product, but then we had a lot of sales and needed more money. So brought on those kind of like value aligned investors at a really early sort of stage and really proved that, you know, if we do take your money, we're not going to kind of just like throw it away and actually build a business model. And um, and then that sort of, yeah, grew into that, um, I guess, like I, th- I feel like it was probably like two years, which just feels like a big blip. Yeah. Um, but during that period, um, we were able to really refine our technology and prove that we can, you know, take on incredible amounts of debt so that we could build this commercial facility and um, and go on to supply these much larger sort of customers. Um, yeah, I guess during that process, you know, we were still using kind of technology where we get other people to do the processing of the waste for us. We bring it in, uh, we compound uh, all the materials together because we have a series sort of variety of different bio-based additives. Um, and uh, during that process, we started working on a facility um, design of a PHA biorefinery um, using sort of those microorganisms to, to ferment the waste. And um, that's now been three years in the works. And, and the fact that we're already at, you know, 10 tonne a day of processing potato waste at that facility in Belgium is actually really incredible because a lot of companies have been working with PHA for 15 years and haven't gotten above, you know, 100 kilos a day. Um, so we've moved very, very fast and innovated really quickly there. And again, just being able to buy leveraging all of these incredible people around the world. And um, yeah, so that's like, that's sort of the next kind of stage of the business, I guess, for us is, is like I said, t- producing a marine degradable um, polymer, but then uh, also expanding overseas. So um, we um, have launched our consumer product in the US uh, and then shortly after, um, we will start building a biorefinery um, on the west coast of the US where we can process a lot of potato waste and having some conversations with some very, very large, just, the pallet wrap industry is just so, so much bigger. I mean, the population is already bigger, but I think just the amount of business commerce mm, is, is sure. enormous. So yeah, that's kind of the next sort of phase of growth for us. It's completely insane. Honestly, <laughs> it's, it's so wild. Part of um, designing these new products that are alternatives that can be com- composted. Consumers also need to know how to to to, to compost things, right? Mm. Mm. So, like, how do we um, upskill people on circular economy? Yeah, big big question. I think there's a lot a lot of answers to that. I mean, I think for us personally, as a business, like we definitely see that as um, a big like it's one of our responsibilities essentially. Um, so by, by you know, creating a voice in which you can talk to people and, and educate essentially, that's very much a pillar of like what we try and work on. Um, I think there is a lot of, I mean, it's something we're, we're talking about a lot at the moment. I think, um, you know, 49% of Australians compost at home, which I think is actually really pretty good when you look at other countries in the world. But um, the system itself is quite large and you know there's a lot of room for improvement so I think um there's a big future in kind of I don't know like that that needs a redesign and a revisit I think like we've seen that we can change consumer behaviors with something like red cycle but if it's not backed up by demand for products on the other side you know people lose trust so definitely a big big challenge for the what we're doing yeah I think like for us you know it's like 
you can do what you can do and what you know and that's about it um what it feels like sometimes we've got limited resources so for us we're setting up a um collection and composting service for mm. pallet wrap customers um i won't say when it's coming out because we're still working on it but like hopefully soon um and you know then we can actually show every year down to the gram by how much we produced and how much was composted at the other end and say, okay, cool, we achieved 50% composting, which is fantastic. Let's try and increase that next year. Um, so we're working on that and as an offering. And if we can actually prove that out as a business model, then maybe we can collaborate with other, you know, bio-based um, sort of alternative compostable plastics and, and work together and sort of start to build that up. And I think that's sort of the best way to kind of combat this. Um, from our perspective, um, we definitely need strong advocates. And, you know, I think there's definitely a big shift um, with consumers um, wanting a difference. Um, and, you know, like I feel like 30 years from now, we're going to look back on the current system. I mean, we look at the current system now and it's like, what is going on? But 30 years <laughs> from now, we're going to look back on it and go, this is like, that was insane. I can't believe the world functioned like that. Um, so I think it's just about trying to take those kind of achievable steps um, to improve what we're doing um, and hopefully people want to get involved and start to work with us as well. I think the appetite's definitely there though from those like large kind of businesses that in, you know, three or four years ago I would have gone, just assumed that they're not sort of looking at how to become more circular or kind of um, embody those values within their business. So, yeah, I think you're definitely right. Like it's very, very positive but a lot of, a lot of room for growth. Mm. You have come a remarkable distance in like, is it three years or four years? Four years? Four, four years in April. Four years in April. Coming out. Is it possible to go too fast? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. I mean, yeah, for you, like you're in wellbeing, um, you know, it's it's terrible. Um, if you want a really good example of how businesses have grown too fast, I think WeWork is probably the greatest example. It's a really good documentary, but... Um, yeah, it grew just way too fast um, and too many ideas. Um, there was We Live and We Schools and, you know, it was just like, um, yeah, just absolutely insane. And I think if you've got to be like laser focused uh, on what you're doing and just try and do that well. Don't get like distracted by a million different things. Make one product and absolutely nail it. Um, and then grow it in a way that, you know, you think is achievable for your own mental well-being, your team's well-being, and then for the amount of money that you actually have in the bank. Um, yeah. yeah, I think you've got to factor a lot of things in. Yeah, and I think it's really, um, and, you know, we're guilty of it in the early days, less so now, but um, it's easy to, when you're developing, when you're operating in the physical space, you get excited and, and think something's close or, you know, almost where you want it to be, but you can get tied to other priorities when you haven't actually refined your product to what it needs to be. And I think that's when you can, you know, see a big spike in growth and then all of a sudden no one's coming back because you haven't actually delivered on what you've promised. So definitely you can go too fast. <laughs> we understand that you received $24 million in your Group A investment round. Congratulations. Thank you. What's the pathway for startups to obtain investment and what's what are the different types of funding that you guys have got along the way? Cool. Um, I mean, I think everyone's sort of funding journey is fairly different. Um, for us, you know, we've been through three investment rounds. Um, I think the thing that's been critical um, at, at each point is essentially like having a proof point of growth that you've gone from 
step A to B um, that people can measure, see, feel in our case. Um, and that's sort of really been critical. You know, I don't think if we'd kind of had our idea um, but hadn't tested it on the market initially and, and tried to get investment, I think that would have been really hard for us um, to kind of raise money off the back of that. Um, would you agree? Like definitely, like you, you kind of have to have some sort of proof point. I think mm. it's kind of, and, you know, when we're talking about future investment rounds, there's kind of developments in our processes that we want to have ticked off and certain kind of like revenue goals that we're aiming for. Um, so essentially we've been really lucky in that we've got um, some amazing investors so they get a percentage of equity in the company. Um, we've also been able to get asset finance. So for all of the machinery costs, um, that's essentially like a bank loan. Um, so we pay uh, low interest on that and that means that all of that money that we get from the equity rounds, we're able to kind of focus on growing the tech, growing the team. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think my only thing to add to that is um, if you're in a position where you are bringing on investors, um, make sure they're investing not to get rich, but because they believe in you and your company. Um, we have brought people on um, that really believe in what we do and really believe in us um, and um, understand our vision and they will back us no matter what and they will do anything to help our company succeed. Um, and we have very good relationships with these people and we're incredibly lucky um, because there have been run really rough times where we haven't met certain deadlines and we're running out of money and, you know, things have gone wrong and, and they come in and help and solve the problem for us. Um, whereas if you just got people who are there to get rich, um, then... Probably won't help you out. Yeah, when it gets, yeah <laughs> they'll, they'll run. And it happens all the time. They'll sort of say, oh, you're running out of money. Like, all right, well, we took a punt, didn't pay off, but that's okay. Um, so, yeah, you need people that really believe in, in your vision. Um, that is so important. I think the other great piece of advice that we got really early on, um, and this is more like kind of on our own well-being, is if, if you are thinking about taking investment, it's um, essentially the amount of money that that person is offering to you. If, if you don't personally feel comfortable, like, you know, you understand the situation, if that's proportionately really high an amount that would put them in a, a wrong good position, like just don't do it. It should never be that way because yep. um, not only if things are going wrong in your business are you going to be thinking about that but you're going to be thinking about the people that you're sort of, you know, jeopardising their financial health for, mm. which is just mm. a way to rapidly burn yourself out. Yeah. yeah. And we didn't we didn't have like any people like that in our network. Like, like No. Like we didn't know wealthy people that could afford to like put 50K down on a investment just to see if it works out um yeah like we got grants and then worked our full-time jobs and bootstrapped and did all those things um and then we we're able to get some media attention and these people kind of started coming out and loved what we did and and then that person knew another person and it kind of just really grew organically and I think that's the daunting thing when we started and we we're like oh my god we're gonna need <laughs> money but we don't know anyone with money how does this work it kind of like I feel like if you just do your thing those people do naturally come to you they'll Definitely. gravitate yeah. to what you're doing so what, what did it feel like when you got that huge investment in the group a funding round Ah, amazing. I think I, well, we had a great sleep um, <laughs> that <laughs> night because, you know, it was pretty tight for a while there. I think though, um, I mean, for me personally, it's still, you know, like we still have to kind of deliver on all of these things that we've done. So 
yeah, it, it was almost like, I guess, fuel to kind of keep you motivated and um, get through to the next stage. I mean, it was obviously incredibly, um, it's like personally flattering because you're like, oh my God, you know, we're actually going to do this project and we have the money to do it and people believe in us. So we were pretty happy for a long time. I was still. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like. $24 million is, is a lot of, it's an insane amount of money, <laughs> right? And, and it's not yours and people have believe in you and, um, and it's up to you to deliver really good outcomes on their investment but also st- stick to your values and, like, hold your guns. Like, you know, there's probably things we could have done differently to grow faster but maybe we'd use materials we didn't want to use and... I don't know. So it's sort of like um, it's very, very daunting because um, you're like I obviously want to do the best thing possible, um, but yeah, you want to stick to your guns and keep doing what you're doing. So um, it's it's a very stressful thing, and sometimes you wake up in the middle of the night and you go, "Oh my god, what have I done?" That's a giant credit card. Oh, yeah, <laughs> and then um, and then other days you go, "How lucky are we to have all these awesome people backing us, and and we're actually doing something great?" And I don't know. You kind of flip-flop between the two. <laughs> yeah, for sure. What are the big next few things and why the States? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, next big few things imminently, like this week, coming weeks, launching Palette Wrap, um, which is super exciting because we've been talking about it for a long time now. So getting all of these samples out to these huge customers and kind of knocking um, petroleum plastic palette wrap out of the Australian supply chain. Um, Yeah, and then after that, I think we're really focused on the US um, expansion in terms of, I guess, our manufacturing capacity and um, palette wrap launching there. We wouldn't ever want to be kind of supplying US businesses from our Australian factory, obviously, just because of the footprint. But I think um, we see the US as kind of a, a huge potential um, market for us just because of the number one, as Jordi said, like incredible, you know, unimaginable vast scale. Um, and I think just like from an impact perspective, probably, um, you know, the home of culture of convenience, right, kind of began there. So I think it's really exciting to kind of see the appetite coming from the US market. Like we, you know, I'd I'd say almost 40% of our investors are are American. So obviously that's proving that the demand is there. So to to go to a huge market and knock it off the shelf there is really exciting. And then we'll continue to kind of grow from there. Yeah, I think like for us, yeah, also like processing our potato waste on site, Mm. you know, we can be fully vertically integrated is something that's super exciting. Putting that solar on the roof and finishing, ticking that box is really lovely also. But yeah, yeah, and then, you know, uh, we're acutely aware of um, potatoes, potato waste um, being a finite sort of resource essentially, Um, you know, only so much is grown every year and there's only so much waste and Mm. um, there's, uh, I think it's, I don't know, it's around 400 million tonnes of plastic version materials are produced every year um, and somewhere between sort of 2 and 9% of that's recycled depending on where you are in the world. So, um, you know, that needs to change um, and um, there isn't enough potato waste. So, yeah, we're also working on technology through bacterial fermentation processes um, to expand our feedstock beyond potato waste and to something that is infinite and is a massive um, cause of climate change. And um, so really sort of excited to kind of keep working on that and hopefully can sort of scale that up over the next few years as well. We'll leave it there, guys. Thank you so much for being on the podcast.
Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Make Good. This podcast was brought to you by Dreamer. We are an architecture and design studio in Brunswick, Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to learn more about Dreamer and the work that we do, please visit our website at www.dreamerlab.com.au or get in touch at studio at dreamerlab.com.au. If you'd like to learn more about Great Rap, check out their Instagram or their website. The intro and outro music was made by me, Ben Shields. I make music under the name Dull Reality. If you have any feedback at all about the podcast, please email me at makegood at dreamerlab.com.au.